we go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a beautiful little meditation uh, that Newman provides us at the uh, beginning of this book of meditations on everyday life. And we, so we thought it would be a nice idea for us to begin each group with it. It's in the opening uh, uh, page of the, of the booklet, if you want to follow along. I place myself in the presence of him in whose incarnate presence I am before I place myself there. I adore you, O my Savior, present here as God and man, in soul and body, in true flesh and blood. I acknowledge and confess that I kneel before that sacred humanity which was conceived in Mary's womb and lay in Mary's bosom, which grew up to man's estate and by the Sea of Galilee called the Twelve, wrought miracles, and spoke words of wisdom and peace, which in due season hung on the cross, lay in the tomb, rose from the dead, and now reigns in heaven. I praise and bless and give myself wholly to him, who is the true bread of my soul and my everlasting joy. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, okay, welcome everybody to the Scola, monthly Scola Christi meeting here at the Oratory. And uh, this is a new beginning for us, uh, along with the new year. We're starting a new series. We had been reading Romano Guardini's meditations from before Mass for about two and a half years. And it was a beautiful experience. Uh, uh, probably led us deeper into, I think, our understanding of our participation in Mass than anything that we had discussed here previously. Uh, but I decided to s switch gears a little bit. Uh, Guardini's book, though small, was quite dense, if you remember, and the, the meditations were a little bit more lengthy. Uh, and yet I still wanted something that was rich for us, uh, but maybe would allow us to, uh, to focus on things topically, rather than following a continuous uh, stream of thought through uh, one, one work. And uh, so I chose uh, Newman's Meditations for Everyday Life. And uh, each, each talk will stand by itself. And they're very, very rich. I think Newman can often be intimidating uh, for, for people. He's one of the great intellects of the 19th century, great theologian, philosopher, poet, uh, church historian. Uh, and uh, one might call him the greatest theologian of the, of the uh, 19th century. And, uh, and so when one picks up his works, typically, it takes uh, a while to work one's way into them. The Newman writes like St. Paul, one single sentence will be, one, one full paragraph will be one single sentence. And I've read a lot of Newman over the years in, in seminary, and I remember it took a good half of a semester just to pick up on Newman's style of writing and to be able to flow, follow his flow of thought. So deep were the thoughts, but also so lengthy were the sentences. But what I've chosen for this group is Newman's daily meditations, where we begin to see something of what was in Newman's heart, I think. What made Newman the saint, not simply the great intellect or the great expositor of the faith, uh, but r really how Newman lived his life on a day-to-day -day basis, what was going on in his mind and heart, and most especially what was going on in his relationship with God, how he understood that relationship on a day-to-day -day basis. We often forget Newman the pastor, that he was also served in a parish, took care of the poor in Birmingham, 
England and was very attentive to their needs. And often we really get a deeper sense of the man through his sermons, through his homilies as well as through his letters. Someone uh, meant, once mentioned that the best way to get a sense of Newman's overall thought is actually to begin by reading his parochial and plain sermons, which he actually wrote before his conversion to Catholicism. And then there's a ex large extent uh, uh, collection of his homilies as, as a Roman Catholic, which were, were much shorter in length, much like our, our homilies are t today, much shorter and much more focused. And these meditations that we'll be looking at, I think, uh, in the weeks and months to come, uh, have that quality. There's a beauty about them. At times they're poetic. At times they seem almost like hymns. And, uh, and there's a simplicity but depth to them. And I think you'll find them quite beautiful. We're beginning with his first two meditations which I pulled together uh, because the, the theme is the same for both, hope. And I was glad that this was actually the, the first meditation because I often think that hope is the neglected virtue. I don't know if I've ever heard a homily that was real, a developed homily on hope itself or, or too many group discussions on hope. It often seems to be that virtue that nobody really understands the, the nature of it and uh, what it, how important it is for the spiritual life, why it is given to us. It's one of the theological virtues. And by theological, we mean simply those virtues that have God as their distinct end and that are also infused, that God gives each of us as human beings by his grace in order to draw us to himself. And so faith, hope, and love are these three theological virtues. And we hear a lot of discussion about the other two, but hope not so much. And yet we see and will see in Newman's writing how important it is for us in the life of faith, and in particular, and uh, persevering in the life of faith. And if we were to get two things out of tonight's group, I would be happy with it. And the first is simply the necessity of, of hope for us in our spiritual life and what it is, what it looks like. This will be the first section of Newman's reflection. And then the second part is, is why we should trust unhesitatingly in God, why we should place all of our trust in him that he will bring us to his promised end, that he will bring us to the life that he has promised us in Christ Jesus if, if we are faithful to him. So it is these two things that we'll be looking at in particular tonight. And before we even start with Newman's writing here from these meditations, I wanted to share with you uh, two little quotations, one from John Henry Newman from his parochial and plain sermons, and one also from Teresa of Avila. And I chose them because they give us something of the flavor of hope itself and how important it is. And the first one I'm giving you is from the Parochial and Plain Sermons from John Henry Newman. He writes, to hope is not only to believe in God, but to believe and be certain that he loves us and means well to us. And therefore it is a great Christian grace, for faith without hope is not certain to bring us to Christ. The devils believe and tremble. They believe, but they do not come to Christ because they do not hope but despair. They despair of getting any good from him. And so it's interesting, Newman helps us enter into the mystery by 
telling us what the, the d devils lack, the essential thing that they lack, lack. They believe, and we hear it over and over again, you, you, are, you are the Christ, why have you come here? Have you come here to torture us? That they recognize him and his identity, but they can find no hope in him, only torture and only despair. And part of the reason, Newman tells us, is because they lack this gift of hope that allows a person to trust in the promises of God and specifically to be able to trust in his mercy. And certainly this is one of the things that the demons would lack. They would not see God as a loving God who's set upon our salvation, but they would see him just as the opposite, as an enemy and the worst of enemies. So that's Newman and very, very clear and I think compelling the next is from Teresa of Avila, who was three centuries before Newman, but her, I thought her thought was quite beautiful. She writes, Hope, O oh my soul, hope. You know neither the day nor the hour. Watch carefully, for everything passes quickly, even though your impatience makes doubtful what is certain and turns a very short time into a long one. Dream that the more you struggle, the more you prove the love that you bear your God, and the more you will rejoice one day with your beloved in a happiness and rapture that can never end. So hope, in Teresa's view, is something that prevents us from becoming impatient. It is a long road that we travel through this life, and we often make it longer through our lack of hope when we begin to lose our trust in God and his presence in that struggle, but also that he will fulfill the promises that he's made to us if we are faithful. And so it's as though she's saying to this, her soul itself, hope, my soul, hope. Stay faithful to the path that you are on. Trust in your God that he will bring you to your final end. And so I think even these two quotes from two distinct individuals give us uh, very much a sense of the importance of hope within the spiritual life. It keeps us from falling into despair and it keeps us moving along the path toward God even when we cannot see ahead of us, when everything feels confusing, when everything seems dark to us. And so Newman says this is something that even faith can't help us with. It's only hope that allows us ultimately to persevere. And so as always, I, I give a little introduction in the red italicized print and then we'll jump right into Newman's reflections. We begin our everyday meditations from St. John Henry Newman with the virtue of hope, a virtue, virtue often neglected and little understood. Newman sees it not only rooted in the goodness of God and his creation, but also in God's personal desire for each of us to experience the happiness for which he has created us. It is not something abstract, but rather unique to each of us as individuals, unique because each soul has its own needs. Therefore, our paths through life are not only radically different from each other, but also seemingly strange. Newman would have us understand that God alone knows what is best for us, and it might not be what we think we need or desire. 
He invites us to unhesitatingly place ourselves into the hands of God who has created us to do something or be something for which no one else has been created. Trust him, Newman tells us, because although we may see and understand nothing, God knows what he is about. So Newman, you know, both as a, a theologian but as a spiritual writer, I think uh, has a deep insight into the, the human, human person, but also I think a deep insight into revelation and God's desire for us. And what I find striking about this first part of the meditation that we'll look at is what Newman uh, is saying here, that God has created each of us, and he's created each of us as unique beings. So he has not created cookie cutter images of each of us as human beings. Each of us has a unique personality. He loves each of us uniquely and individually, and he knows what each of us individually needs for our salvation and will guide us along the path that will bring us to that end. So Newman expresses a, an extraordinary kind of personalism here, that in God's eyes, we are not part of s simply this enormous group of individuals, but rather uh, we are individual persons that he knows every hair on our head, he knows exactly all of our needs, where we struggle, the graces that are needed to bring us to that final end. And so when we hear things within the scripture, God has loved you with an everlasting love. We should experience that, Newman tells us, in the most personal way, not simply directed towards us as a group, but as individuals, knowing who we are, the struggles that we have, and even the times that we obstinately will resist him, God still loves us and moves at every moment to draw us back to himself. And so Newman works very hard in the first part of tonight's reflection to help us understand that. And beyond loving us uniquely and knowing what, is, what we need, he's also given us each a, a unique role and responsibility within this world. Each of us has a particular purpose in God's plan of salvation. And we might not ever see it clearly. And yet there is this unique bond that we have with God and with each other. And there are small hidden ways that we have an enormous impact upon each other's lives and help people along that, that journey toward God. So again, Newman speaks in this profoundly intimate way uh, about how, how God looks at us and, but how also we are related to each other and the impact that we have on each other's lives. What allows us to trust so hesitatingly, unhesitatingly, Newman states, is the love that God has revealed to us in his Son and through his Spirit. God has expressed his desire and will for us to abide in him eternally. The exquisite mystery into which we are drawn is that God loves us as he loves his only son, whom he sent to die on our behalf. How constant is God's affection, how willing he is to sacrifice what is most precious to him in order to redeem us. This despite the fact that we are so obstinately set against him. We are left to wonder with the psalmist, what is man that thou art mindful of him? God has loved us with an everlasting love, 
and wills that all be saved, what firmer foundation for hope is needed? And this is where I think perhaps it is the ne neglected virtue and that sometimes we neglect to talk about the things that surround the virtue of hope. What would lead us to place our trust unhesitatingly in God? The God has loved us with an everlasting love from all eternity. It has been within God's mind and heart to create us, but also to love us and to bring us into this fullness of union and communion with him. Uh, but that it also that it is his will that all be saved. And we hear this within the, the, the scriptures. And the way that Christians speak and the way that they talk to each other and about each other would make one doubt this re reality and call it into question. In fact, I think in many conversations today, it is called into question. And you would find many Christians that, w w that believe in the massa damnata, that the majority of people are damned. And I think even in many people's personal experience, there is the feeling that they are damned, that the stone, as it were, has not been rolled away from the tomb, and that they still remain locked in the darkness of their own sin. That while there might even be faith there, uh, a belief in, in Christ, on a deeper level, there can be a, uh, an underlying anxiety and fear that eventually God will reject them. That because of their poverty, because of their sin, that God will show no mercy. And a lot of this arises, I think, in terms of how we've been formed in the faith. Uh, sometimes it is rooted in some of the traumas that we've experienced within, within our, our life. Uh, certainly it can be rooted in how we live our, our lives, too. The more distant that we become from God, in terms of our lack of prayer, or the ways that we, at times, are neglectful of our spiritual life, we lose sight of God, that everything else looms so large that we lose sight of him. And what we see is the world around us, it's chaos, it's sin, it's evil, and we see our own poverty. And gradually, because we are neglecting our relationship with God and our spiritual life, we lose sight of him, and we lose sight of that mercy. And perhaps we don't hear it preached enough from the pulpit. There is a lot of preaching about sin, often, and uh, concern about sin, which of course we have to, to speak about, but perhaps not enough about hope or forgiveness or mercy. The things that would encourage men and women to place all of their trust in the love of, of God. You know, the, the most powerful and motivating force in our life is love. And, uh, but the way that we act in our life I think would speak to everyone that we believe that the most powerful and motivating force is fear. Uh, whether it's in our day-to-day -day life, our work, our studies, we drive ourselves because we fear failure. We, feel getting, we fear failing classes or we fear losing our job or losing our material goods. Uh, we fear of the violence of others. And then in uh, that relationship with God, ultimately, we can feel that we uh, are, are driven by fear rather than love there as well. That the focus becomes on the sin and the avoiding of sin rather than love and moving towards that love and seeking to embrace that love. 
ultimately it is love that pulls us away from sin and makes it less attractive to the human mind and heart. So even as we're engaged in the spiritual battle, the battle within every single day, we want to make sure that our minds and our hearts are directed towards God, because otherwise we are slowly going to sl slip into despair if our focus is only and always on our weakness, on our poverty. Because even if every day we fall into the same sin, if we turn back to God, immediately a flood of mercy and love comes upon us. St. John Climacus is one of the great ascetical writers and, uh, and talks a lot about sin and the struggle with passion, says if we fall every day and we turn to back to God or we rise every day towards him, then our guardian angel gazes upon us with great joy because the moment that we make that turn toward God in trust is when we experience that flood of mercy and grace and love upon us. It's only when we are paralyzed by our sin and by our own sense of our poverty that we draw in on ourselves and away from God or we fall into despair. And so the more godly movement for us, if you will, is that of hope, an invincible hope in God, not in our ourselves. And I think this is what Newman will seek to communicate to us here. So why don't we jump right in uh, to the text. And uh, as always, I'll stop every, after every paragraph or so and open it up for questions com or comments. God has created all things for good, all things for their greatest good, everything for its own good. What is the good of one is not the good of another. What makes one man happy would make another unhappy. God has determined, unless I interfere with his plan, that I should reach that which will be my greatest happiness. He looks on me individually. He calls me by name. He knows what I can do, what I can be best be, what is my greatest happiness, and he means to give it to me. So already in this first paragraph, there's something striking about Newman's thought. Uh, and what is striking is the, the lack of negativity, that God is set upon our happiness, and he's determined to give it to us and to help us make our, our way to it. And at times, he'll go on to show us that we might not really always understand what will bring us that happiness or the path to it, and so God does everything he can to guide and direct us along that path, and that's why it seems so strange to us at times. But nonetheless, God's goal is that we should know the greatest happiness as human beings. Often we will, we will be satisfied with much less, and we're often seeking and grasping to receive what the world can give us, or the, the, sort of the alms that the world will throw into our lap, rather than reaching out for the greatest good that God desires to give us and the greatest happiness that he desires to give us. And it's sort of a strange thing even to think of God in this way as desiring the happiness of each of us individually and uniquely as we are as human beings. It's like the, the psalmist said, in the, and I use the, the quote within the introduction, what is man that you consider him or care for him? the small being who often obstinately resists you, what is it about us 
that makes you love us so much that you desire to save us all, but also to draw us into the greatest of good, the goods, that we might experience the fullness of the life of the Most Holy Trinity, that we might experience life without end. And maybe that's part of our struggle, to be honest with you, that it is hard to imagine being loved in such a way. And uh, I think that's why Jesus uses stories in the Gospels, like the story of the prodigal son, that you know, basically the, the prodigal son wants his inheritance, so it's almost as if he's wishing his father dead, give me what I will get from my inheritance, goes off and squanders it. And yet the father receives him back with this extraordinary joy, not even listening to the little speech that the prodigal son had prepared. Father, I'm not worried to be called your son. You know, receive me back as one of your slaves or servants. The father doesn't pay attention, but rather embraces him, clothes him, orders that the, the fatted calf be slaughtered for a great feast out of joy of having his son return to him. And we can imagine those listening to Jesus in his day having a very difficult time believing this, especially those that Jesus was spending most of his time with, tax collectors, prostitutes, those who are out at the margins of society. And we also know that there were those who did not want to believe this, that God could offer this kind of love in such an extraordinary fashion to known sinners. The, the professional religious of the day, if you will, took objection to such a notion that love would be given so freely, so unconditionally, as the way Christ was speaking about it. And so Newman gradually draws us back to this vision that I, I think is, is deeply rooted within, within the Gospels. We see how Newman we see something of Newman's mind and heart here, that it, it wasn't all here, that he had internalized what he read in the gospel in a profound fashion. And it's only this kind of deep internalization that I think that could give voice to what we've just heard, but what we will hear through the rest of this. Okay, any thoughts so far? All right. God knows what is my greatest happiness, but I do not. There is no rule about what is happy and good. What suits one would not suit another, and the ways by which perfection is reached vary very much. The medicines necessary for our souls are very different from each other. Thus God leads us by strange ways. We know he wills our happiness, but we neither know what our happiness is nor the way. We are blind. Left to ourselves, we would take the wrong way. We must leave it to him. Let us put ourselves into his hands and not be startled, even though he leads us by a strange way, a mirabilis via, a wondrous way, as the church speaks. Let us be sure he will lead us right that he will bring us to that which is not indeed what we think best, nor what is best for another, but what is best for us. So this is part of our struggle, I think, as human beings, not only believing and trusting that God wants our happiness, 
and will do everything possible to give us that greatest good and that greatest happiness. It's not only hard for us to believe it, but it's hard if not impossible for us to find that path on our own. And this is, again, where trust and hope comes in. Our willingness to allow God to take us by the hand and lead us upon the unique path he has in mind for each of us, to allow ourselves to be radically open to the guidance of the Spirit. We've talked about this a little bit in some of our other groups, that we can be every bit as willful in the spiritual life as we are in other parts of our life. That we can have in our mind what our spiritual path would look like, or what holiness looks like, or what kind of prayer God is calling us to, or the depth of that prayer, and or what particular vocation. And so we can begin to sort of t try to take charge of things. And it doesn't take very long for us to see that doesn't work too well. That invariably there's something that happens within our life that exposes that willfulness, but also reveals to us that we aren't on the path that God desires for us and that will lead uniquely to that salvation and that happiness that he has in mind. And so on, on one level, we have to see ourselves like the blind beggar on the side of the road. You know, hearing that Christ is passing by and crying out, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. And uh, crying out to him until he calls us to himself and can heal us and can give us the vision that we need uh, in order to walk along the path that he would have us walk. And for the blind beggar was following Jesus to Jerusalem where Christ would make the ultimate gift of himself and love, and that's true for, for many of us as well, even though our path along that way might, might vary in, in some measure. But this acknowledgement of our blindness is important. And Newman, as brilliant as he was, and as so much light, as even though there was so much light that God had given him in terms of his capacity to understand and articulate the faith, knew that in the spiritual life, that God gives light enough for us to take one step at a time. Lead kindly light, his famous hymn, expresses exactly that. It's a light that God gives to us and that we call out to, to God to give us. But God typically will give us the one, light enough for the one step forward. And it's our responsibility simply to take that step. Our fidelity lies in our willingness to go where God guides us and at the pace that God guides us in accord with the light at the moment that he gives us. Any thought on this second paragraph? Yes? It's, it's so much like uh, being a, trying to be a good parent. Like when you're trying to convince your children that um, even though you don't understand that this is for your own good, someday you will see. And it, you know, it, it just, I hear so many people say, like, someday you're going to thank me for this. <laughs> don't wait for that, because <laughs> it's never going to happen. Right. Because a lot of times they're not, they, they don't want to acknowledge it, or they don't want to see it. But I like that he says, you know, he knows my greatest happiness. He means to give it to me. It, it just, it's so, um, so reminiscent of that, when you have to make those tough decisions, and you know it's for their best interest. And you just can't convince them. They just have to trust. Right. It's comforting on, on multiple levels, I think. You know, both in terms of teaching the things that we would need to teach our children, 
but also our willingness to, to let God guide them. Because in reality, God has entrusted them to parents. They belong to God, they've been entrusted to the parents. And often their children are guided along paths that we would not have envisioned for them either. And uh, it might be a roundabout way and we might be frustrated, we might be scared on their behalf. And uh, I think the strongest way to guide children, yeah, and I think what we are picking up from Newman in this as well, is the witness of this kind of hope that, that children see in their parents. And that is reflected in the way that they live their life, how they deal with the trials and tribulations of day-to-day -day life, how they deal with their own fears, how they follow God from moment to moment, day to day. This is what speaks to children the most. And we've mentioned this before, you know, what is more powerful than the image of seeing a father at the foot of his bed on his knees praying every night or guiding the family in the praying of the, of the rosary or you know the parents at mass with a kind of reverence and devotion that really speaks to the human heart and then becomes something that the children begin to imitate and i think that shows you it's becoming very deeply rooted within their minds hearts and their imaginations it's not simply being told this is good for you it's they're being shown what a powerful reality this is in their parents life what an overwhelming peace, joy that it gives them throughout the ups and downs of life, the trials and tribulations. And I think our tendency, not simply as parent, parents, but as Christians in general, is to be heavy handed. That we will often seek to beat people over the head with the faith. And we will convince ourselves that this fierce arguing and you know, verbal battle is somehow guiding people along that path. And I'm always again struck by Newman who said that it is absurd to try to argue someone in the faith as it is to torture them into the faith. So Newman, this greatest of minds of the 19th century is telling us you're never going to argue somebody into the faith because faith is a gift. You are called to take those opportune moments to articulate the faith as fully as you can, but most of all, you're called to bear witness to it. You're to live it there, to encounter in you the living God. And we find it much easier, I think, to argue about it than to actually live it. And it's not a quietism. In fact, I think it's just the opposite to fully live the faith, to manifest the, the, the Beatitudes as something that have been internalized within us, to engage every person with patience and charity and long-suffering. It requires deep prayer and self-discipline and humility. And it's much easier, as I said, to engage in fierce arguments online and to convince oneself that you're doing God's work. It seems much more concrete to us somehow. And uh, I think this, this is where we, we lose people. And I think when we live in a day like our own, when this is part and parcel of contemporary uh, converse, 
you know, this kind of arguing and talking over each other. You ever see those news shows where they have five people gathered together as a panel? They end up, typically end up usually screaming over top of each other, and to the point that it's irritating enough that you turn it off. And I, I think that's what a lot of people have done with Christianity. They've turned it off. That we have added to the noise of the world, and it's every bit as irritating as the rest of the noise of the world. Uh, unless what we are saying, by the way that we live our life, is touching people at a deeper level, that is, is speaking to the, their hearts and bearing witness not to the self, but to Christ. Today, in today's gospel, we hear John the Baptist say, he must increase, I must decrease. And this should be our model as well. We're, we're not meant to put ourselves forward. We're meant to put Christ forward. And the way that we do this, again, is all by always pointing to him in what we say, what we do, and how we, we treat others. Any other thoughts so far in the second paragraph? Yes, Anthony. I'm not sure how to articulate it, but uh, you know, I just was thinking that it's important to not be flippant about uh, how people may be going in their spiritual life and how hard it can be at any given point to trust in the mercy of God. Right. You know, there is a very real problem of suffering mm -hmm. that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And it's not just personal suffering, but you know, as you have were mentioning, you know, you look mm -hmm. at the world, there's a lot of things that happen, right. you know, in, to so many people, you know, mm -hmm. that they live their whole lives in complete darkness. Mm -hmm. You know, gang members, you know, women who were sold into prostitution, like you know, it's right. hard to understand how this applies to them. Mm -hmm. And you know, one one can just be flippant and say, "Oh, you should trust God." You know, he knows what he's doing. It's 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 important to realize that you know there's real concerns that have to be. Addressed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's for us to take this and make it practical. How is it that we live this out on a day-to-day -day basis? Because you're you're absolutely right. And I think when we look at the saints, the holier they be, the holier they became, also the more empathetic they became. The, the more that they looked at others with love and saw the presence of God within them, the less judgmental that they became. And so I think it's precisely our ability to enter into the sufferings of others that, uh, that what is what Newman would be ultimately speaking to as well, that our hope then should lead us to want to draw others into that hope. And that takes a willingness to, uh, to be compassionate, to suffer with, to enter into another person's world and to walk that journey with them. And Newman was very well aware of the concrete ways that we do that, but also the, the millions of hidden ways that, that, we, that takes place on uh, a daily basis. There's a bond of connection between each of us, he will say, and that we've given, each been given our particular work in order to help others uh, make this journey or to manifest the, the love of the kingdom. And so, yes, I mean, I'm, 
and I hope I'm not coming off that way, or Newman, I hope Newman isn't coming off in any way of being flippant, because I think he's just the opposite, you know, that one would say Newman was a sensitive soul, and very attentive, I think, to uh, the trials and the tribulations of others, and this willingness to engage people and journey with them. Uh, in fact, Newman has one of the largest collections, or we have, I think, the, one of the largest extent collections of letters that Newman engaged so many different people throughout the course of his life. Thousands upon thousands, multiple volumes of letters uh, engaging people about the, the faith or their concerns in w one way or another, whether those were theological or spiritual. And so uh, Newman, and I think this is often the image of him sometimes, but Newman was not uh, living in an ivory tower, you know, and, you know, doing his writing. You know, he was immensely capable of doing that. I mean, he could stand and write for hours upon hours, but again, he was pastor of souls. You know, he worked in a parish, did all the things that a typical parish priest would do. And so it was deeply, and it wasn't like he was living in this elite parish uh, of the wealthy, but it was a poor, poor town. So I, th I think he was uh, very well aware of, of the plight of those living in the world. Okay, but good point. I mean, I think even as we reflect upon this, we want to be attentive to that. Yes? To that point, Anthony, mm -hmm. it's well taken in that um, it, makes me, it makes me think of uh, working with very afflicted populations and how the truth of the fact that God desires our salvation more than we do. So he'll meet us in that moment for that person, for the prostitute, for whomever, for the afflicted person. And in meeting them through us extending mercy in that moment, he's giving them, he's reaching out his hand to them right where they are, as they are, and giving them that choice in that moment to take that one that's, that's right. As you were saying. That's right. And I think, you know, Pope Francis just said that, you know, one of his great concerns is that we've lost this kind of missionary aspect uh, to the life of the church of engaging others directly. That we can get caught up in a lot of the externals uh, of the faith life and it can solidify to such an extent that then we lose sight of those around us. And so it is precisely our, our willingness to, he, he wants us to engage others and engage them where, where they are. And you know, certainly over the course of time, I think individuals that I've talked to that have thought that they are the furthest away from God or see themselves as the most wounded or hanging by a thread actually turn out to be the ones who have the, the deepest faith. It seems like hanging by a thread, but that thread is pretty s strong and bears witness to this incredible faith. They've been through to hell and back, to put it bluntly. And so while they seem broken, there's often this greater faith. And even when we look at the Gospels too, and those who responded most to Christ, and really could see the love and the mercy of God present to him, weren't those that one, perhaps would have expected 
In fact, they, were, they rejected him as a heretic and cast him out of the synagogues. And it was the, the known sinners. And I'm always struck by that passage of uh, the woman who comes and anoints his, his head, his feet, uh, at the supper, and everybody's scandalized by it. And he says something extraordinary there. You know, when uh, there's a fuss put up about it, and this could have been sold for the poor, you know, the precious nard that she uses. And it's not said of anyone else in the gospel. Christ says, what she has done here will be remembered and proclaimed wherever the gospel is, is preached. You know, what she has done is so reflective of, of the love of the kingdom, but also the love that he was going to reveal very shortly. She, she breaks that precious jar of ointment and allows it to spill out completely over him. And he says, you know, she's anointing me for my death. But she, he, she does exactly what he's going to do on the cross, allow himself to be broken and poured out in this lavish way, a lavish way that we can't even begin to, to imagine. And so... Well, I was mm -hmm. just going to say, in fact, Newman is an excellent person to look to for this exact situation you're, mm -hmm. you're talking about. I don't know how many people know this whole story of the Achille trial, mm -hmm. but Newman, as a Catholic priest, like risked everything, including mm -hmm. like going to jail Prison. and mm -hmm. everything, to um, to prosecute the common abuser of dozens of women who had been sexually abused mm -hmm. by this man, who had children by him all over Europe. He, like at his own expense, gathered them together, brought the guy to prosecution. So, like, there's definitely an enormous practical side to him as well right. where it wouldn't just be like well this happened and that's the way it is I mean he like spent years taking the guy to court and right. it's, a, so, it's an amazing uh, it's, story it's an, an incredible story and I'm surprised actually there's a priest here Father Drew who wrote a screenplay on this and uh, based upon the story and I've always been surprised that that hasn't been put forward by Newman because it speaks so powerfully to our time that this was an ex-priest who was defrocked and he had actually raped somebody, a, a woman, within the confessional. And so Newman, you know, speaks out against this uh, priest who had come to, to England and, you know, in order to sort of tear the Catholic Church apart. But there was this d dark secret that was being uh, held from, from the people. And so Newman works to expose it and he's sued for slander. And, and the priest wins. The ex-priest is the one who wins. Wow. Newman's the one who's yeah. convicted of criminal libel and mm -hmm. fined and, you know, so even unsuccessfully. But what a powerful example of, of courage and fidelity needed in our own day. You know, despite the, the cost to him, Newman was willing to pay it for the sake of justice and, and love. Yes? Someone on YouTube? says, uh, how do we know the vocation God intended for us? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what so many saints have said is to stay focused uh, upon the moment and to live in fidelity to God. So to embrace uh, what God has revealed to us in his son and to live that from moment to moment. 
to seek to overcome the vices, to grow in virtue, to love God and to love one another, and not to live in the past or in, in the future. But God is in the moment. Now is the moment of salvation. And the saints tell us that our fidelity to God in this fashion will eventually coalesce in such a way that, or God will make it coalesce in such a way that the path that he desires for us will open up before us so that we don't have to have anxiety within our minds and hearts about what we're to do. And it's funny, the first thing that we ask everybody when you come to college especially is, you know, what do you do or what are you going to study? What's your major? You know, so we're trained very early on to look to the future and to try to plan for the future. Whereas the saints tell us, don't do it. The God is in the moment, and by trying to do that, we'll actually, we can actually go off in the wrong direction altogether and expend an enormous amount of energy and not, not be on the path that God desires for us. There's uh, a little uh, phrase I like, not, or word that I like to come back to, and it's etymology that I think is helpful, and the word is infatuation. And when you break it down, it's infatuous, false light. And there was this phenomenon in the desert that when those who, uh, the Bedouins were traveling through the desert, they would see a light off in the distance. And when it became nightfall, they would often head off into to that light, hoping to find warmth and comfort of a camp. And yet it was an optical illusion in the desert. So they would head off and could be going in the wrong direction altogether. All and that often, if we look at our own lives, that is often what happens to us. We often will follow these false lights that seem to promise warmth, comfort, and we're, we're looking off to the, the, the distance, but it's an optical illusion. It's not true. That the truth is for us is right in the moment. And this was very important again for Newman. One step enough for me, lead kindly light that it's God gives us the light that we need in the moment. It's simply our fidelity to that that is sufficient, that he will bring things to coalesce in such a way that it becomes clear to us the path God has called us to walk upon. And again, I think this is where hope and trust comes into play. If we believe that God loves us, that we believe that he's created us for a specific purpose and a unique purpose, that he desires our happiness above all things, then it becomes easier for us to trust that and to live by that, that we will trust simply in the light that he gives at the moment and that's sufficient for us. The moment that we begin to lose that hope in God and that trust in his goodwill and desire for us is when we seek to take things into our own hands where we begin to try to control our own destiny. And so again, this is where hope comes back into play. So it's a gr great question over happened to ask it. Why don't we move on? Because we've only gone through two paragraphs here. <laughs> I thought we were going to move through these quickly. <coughs> oh my God, I will put myself without reserve into your hands wealth or woe, joy or sorrow, friends or bereavement, honor or humiliation, good report or ill report, comfort or discomfort, your presence or the hiding of your countenance. All is good if it comes from you. You are wisdom and love. What can I desire more? 
You have led me in your counsel, and with glory you have received me. What have I in heaven, and apart from you, what I want upon earth? My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the God of my heart and my portion forever. So again, very, very powerful images for us that whatever our circumstances might be, the complete opposites, wealth or, or woe, joy or sorrow, friends or bereavement, honor or, or humiliation, in any one of these things, our fundamental attitude must be the same. And that's hope, a hope in God. And it's not as though we treat those things as easy or that we become flippant about a person's circumstances or just, as you said, just trust in God. Uh, because that trust, you know, has to be rooted in something real. You know, there's a reason that Thomas said, I won't believe until I can place my hand in his open wound. And so there has to be something for someone to hold on to, if you will, that helps establish that trust in their life. And this kind of faith, this kind of hope comes in and through the body of Christ. This is why Christ establishes his church. You know, he does not want his presence among us or this guidance to be something abstract and notional, but real, concrete, and tangible. And that our experience of his love, of his mercy, of his guidance, would every, be every bit as concrete and tangible, if not more, than what the apostles experienced. And if we s slow things down, we think about it a little bit, what God has given to us in the church, we have the constant witness you know, of the life, the writings, the teachings of the saints, the martyrs. We have the, the church itself, its teachings, the sacramental life. We have those that God has given to us to guide us along the path of faith. When we enter into the confessional and we hear the words of absolution, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we experience and hear in a tangible way those words of mercy is coming from the lips of Christ himself. And the same thing, take, eat this body. It's not an abstract or notional thing for us, but real, concrete, tangible, this reception of his love. And so if people were to ask us, do you have a real and personal relationship with Christ? You know, our response as Catholic Christians should be absolutely. There should be no hesitation in our speech and we should not have to think about it for a moment if we are living it. And for those, as you've mentioned, who may have never experienced it for one reason or another, it's our responsibility to be that hand of Christ that reaches out to them, to be that source of tenderness and love, that it isn't simply by speaking at them. And again, I think that's what Newman understood you know, it's not simply through our words or arguing somebody that we're going to convince them. There has to be this experience of Christ and the way that they are to experience him is in and through us. And it's very easy, I think, again, for us to lose that sense of it. And I think this is what given, has given Pope Francis the concern that he has, that we often get into these uh, intellectual debates amongst ourselves and these battles amongst ourselves and are failing miserably to bear witness to Christ within, within the world.
God was all complete, all blessed in himself, but it was his will to create a world for his glory. He is almighty and might have done all things himself, but it has been his will to bring about his purposes by the beings he has created. We are all created to his glory. We are all created to do his will. And so Newman already begins to hint to what I was just saying there, that he's given us, he's created us to do his will. And part of doing his will is bearing witness to his glory, this love, this self-emptying, selfless love that reaches out to the other. And so it's not sitting on our hands, and it's not pontificating, but it's actually engaging others where they are or wherever they might be in that journey. Yes? Okay, just going on back to the last paragraph real quick, just that all is good and it comes from you. And that just really hit me hard about, especially what I've experienced personally in my life, that, like you said, it's not, especially things that don't go our way, it's very hard a lot of times to accept that, but if we allow ourselves to soften our hearts and be open to God's grace, then it can be an outpouring of, of trust, of hope, and a realization that, again, like we don't know what God's plan is for us in the future, and, and like you said, neither should we, we worry ourselves about that, but also to not be angry at God for things that are good, don't go our way, or that are painful, but to really realize that, again, it's an opportunity to grow closer to God, to cling to God, to grow in love with God, uh, of God, but also to realize that could be giving us and probably most of the time is giving us that as an opportunity for penance for salvation right and part of this I think I'm very good and you know I think in all these experiences there's the presence and the providence of God even in the things that are very difficult or painful they are not out of God's purview and that while it might not even be what he willed for us, say if there's a specific evil that we encounter or we are afflicted, that God is not absent from that reality. There's nothing, nothing that we suffer in isolation. And so even in those darkest of times, the humiliation of suffering, that God can draw, draw us through it, that we can encounter God, even in those things of our greatest poverty or the, even the greatest wounds that we've borne, uh, within this life. And so again, you know, this capacity to hope in God, even in the face of the greatest darkness, is why, why this virtue is so important to us. Because, you know, the word is used here, strange path, but sometimes it can be exquisitely painful, one might say, you know, to the point that we can't tell up from down and but to know that God is present there and that we aren't being abandoned in it as dark as it becomes that he's always there grasping us by the hand is something that allows us to to move forward Andrea yeah I also wanted to make a comment mm -hmm. about the same paragraph mm -hmm. Says that worst of all joy or sorrow, friends or bereavement, honor or humiliation, good report or ill report, mm -hmm. comfort or discomfort, your presence or the hiding of your countenance, mm -hmm. all is good if it comes from you. 
that you know these words it is very obvious but you know I did want to state the obvious that these words come from a man who was already very advanced in the spiritual life and he's saying here you have led me in your counsel and with glory have you received me mm -hmm. so he had already experienced God on very mm -hmm. intimate levels okay. you know for for someone who you know, I mean, I can just look at myself, you know, before I entered the church, before I even received the, or was capable of receiving, mm -hmm. you know, before I, I was even capable of receiving God's call. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just living all this, it was just all dark, mm -hmm. you know, and there, I I would have never understood, I mean, even the, the simple phrase like, God is with you, like, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm miserable here, what do you mean God is with me? And then you were also making the comment that, you know, um, that uh, others can experience the truth of these statements, you know, through uh, through us, uh, uh, the different members of the body of Christ, mm -hmm. which is also yes, very true. But there, I wanted to to share my experience that before I experienced our Lord in His members, uh, in the other parts uh, of His body, I I I first experienced Him in the sacraments. Mm -hmm. So I just. I was called, you know, into the church, you know, by the desire to receive him uh, in the most blessed sacrament, and then it just went, it all went from there. So he himself did all of the work, and he laid the groundwork. So, so my message, my word, you know, for those, you know, who who cannot fathom any of this, who don't understand anything from their point of view, none of this makes sense because they've never ever experienced anything like this, you know, just to just, you know, join the church if you're not part of it already and, you know, just continue to receive the sacraments and allow God to do his work in you. And, you know, things will slowly take shape until you're able to refer to more and more receive of him, mm -hmm. you know, including that you know, you're made ready to receive from the body of Christ. Right. You're right. I mean, Newman is speaking from one who's had long experience of making that difficult journey. And uh, and so, you know, I don't think we would have the expectation that someone who is just coming to the faith or even exploring it would have that same experience. And I think that's why at the beginning I said, even if we can take two points away from this, you know, some of the fundamental ideas of the, the nature of God's love for us and how he's created us and his desire f for our happiness and the or the uniqueness of uh, uh, that we have in God's eyes you know that he sees everything that there is about us and that he enters into that and loves us in this unique fashion if we were able even just to take a few things from this where one doesn't have to have this height of sanctity but maybe it's the first time they are hearing it. And I think that's a good thing. That's how it began for most of us. You know, it's through what seemed to be a chance encounter with someone or maybe the experience of the Eucharist. And how many stories do you hear of a person walking into a church and experiencing the divine liturgy and being moved by the beauty of it? You know, mine came from a chance encounter with an old friend on Fifth Avenue, just passing by. And if it never had happened, my life, it's, I still shudder when I think about it because my first thought was to walk by, and I did, and happened to run into the same person this, in the same night a second time. 
and that time they came over to me. And I look back at that, and, I, and they invited me that night to the Christmas party at Tech House, which was the Catholic student house at Carnegie Mellon. If that, me, if that, if I did not go out at that one time, and this is what Newman is talking about here, often in these hidden ways, we have these little connections with individuals throughout our life that we might not recognize how sweeping of an impact it had on them. And so we are to be living our lives with this kind of constant openness. And so here it was a, a, a woman filled with faith who came over and engaged me and made this simple invite that then exposed me to everybody else at the Newman Center and then Catholicism as a whole, and then took me down this really strange path, which I would never have dreamt of in a million years. And this is what Newman is getting at, that, you know, we have, and I think that's where, why we want to follow his lead here as he takes it through, takes us through it, because he shows us something of that, that these powerful connections that God creates and how present he is within our life that can open up this path for so many people. This is what I, I think we really want to be aware of, because it gives us hope but I think it also can give others hope as well to know that God is that present and involved in our lives. One more thought and then we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, Andrea, also, and what you said about not being aware of God, you know, as, as Newman was here at a certain point in your life. And I feel like that's true for all of us and that even though we are unaware of him, he is perfectly aware of us, profoundly aware of us, and giving us the preparations we need, even though we're unaware, to prepare us for the vocation he has in mind for us, for the destiny, for the, for the mission for that only we can do. And sometimes it's not even until 30, 40, 50, however many decades, when you're given the mission and your faith has grown in all of those decades where you see, oh my goodness, God was at work in all of those years, even in my unawareness, even of him, and him doing so, and how he worked all of those things, preparing us for that specific mission, which is so amazing. So that even if we aren't aware of him doing it, he's still doing it, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's yeah, that really God cool. knows what he's about, Newman phrases, phrases it, that it almost doesn't matter so much. I mean, we often put so much weight upon ourselves and those individual decisions and mistakes that we've made, thinking that we've ruined things. And, you know, in God's measure of things and in terms of what he can bring about by his grace, there should be no anxiety there for us. That God knows what he's about and what to do with all of that, no matter how messy it may have been Sometimes or perhaps is it. That's right. That's right. Okay, we're moving on. <laughs> I am created to do something or to be something for which no one else is created. I have a place in God's counsels, in God's world, which no one else has. Whether I be rich or poor, despised or esteemed by man, God knows me and calls me by name. And so again, this is what we've been talking about, the uniqueness that Newman sees in every individual and in the eyes of God. God has created me, and this should sound familiar, these next two paragraphs are sort of famous uh, for their beauty, but 
God has created me to do him some definite service. He's committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. Somehow I am necessary for his purposes, as necessary in my place as an archangel in his. If indeed I fail, God can raise another as he could make stones, children of Abraham. Yet I have a part in this great work. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good, I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place though not intending it, if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. So it's, it's beautiful that mere fidelity in, again, what lies before us of embracing the call that God has made known to us and simply seeking to live that as fully and as well as possible allows us to be all of these things that God makes us necessary, the part of God's love for us is to make us necessary in this work of redemption, in this work of salvation. And uh, I, I love the phrase, a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. And this is what he's talking about, sort of the powerful personalism uh, of Newman, that he, he understands this kind of connection between people that we do not want to lose. And I think this may have been something that he gained perhaps from St. Philip Neri that this was Neri's tactic, if you will, within Rome. It was this personal connection with others on the streets, engaging them about the faith, or simply engaging them they w where they were in, in conversation. And, uh, and there was always a kind of, of, of gentleness and kindness about that. And so I think when we hear this in Newman, him speaking in this way, we, we definitely see the impact of being an oratorian for him because this, you know, the oratorian always looks to Philip Neary in this regard, that we fish as it were with a single line, not with a net. And this is what Newman is telling us, you know, that we, we have this connection and so we don't have to worry about doing everything or throwing this, you know, big net to bring in a great catch of fish. That it's just as necessary to have those within the church who are fishing with that single line. And perhaps it's those who fish with that single line that are, are able to be attentive to those most at need because their, their focus is more attentive. You know, they're aware and looking for those that are, are in need. Yes? Um, what's really standing out to me is just that last little affirmation, he has not created me for naught. And I feel like oftentimes when we talk about um, conception and birth and new human beings coming into the world, you know, we talk so much about like, well, it's in God's plan, or whatever God intends, or, you know, and we, we speak about him having a very direct hand in every life that comes into this world. 
and then we experience terrible families or immense suffering or just really hard things and that really begins to sound more and more like pious fluff like no actually God has put it into the capability of human beings with their own will and their own bodies to bring life about and he has instilled that miraculous ability into them and if they do what they do in order to bring life into this world life can very well come to this world and he has nothing to do with it like he he implanted that ability and then walked away and um i feel like i'm sort of been there for a long time like far more cynical about how uh random the creation of life is and new life's coming into the world is so there's just something about that maybe to hold on to that as like completely random as it can seem like those people just decided to have a kid and they did that um that he is more present there and it's really not for nothing and no life is for nothing um, right i think that's precisely what's powerful here but it also keeps us I think humble and from putting out as you describe it as fluff or fit, pretending as if we have all the answers to life's questions and problems and sufferings we don't you know that God has drawn us into this mystery and we find ourselves in this mystery of, of deep love and presence of God but also deep evil within within the world and the moment that we begin to pretend that we can answer those questions or where we cease to say, I don't know, you know, then I think we've fallen into a pretty deep pride there. It kind of reminds mm -hmm. me of this little thing Pope Benedict said. And it remind, it, it's a difficult thing to grapple with, especially when people are really annoying. Um, or you just want to think like, well, you're just like a waste, like, I mean, that's a pretty extreme term, but um, he, he has said, um, each of us is willed, each of us is loved, each of us is necessary. Right. And it's pretty, three pretty amazing things to look at every single person alive and say you were directly willed, you were directly loved, and maybe the hardest one of all that you were truly necessary. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah. Of course he was influenced by Newman in saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, 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 the same paragraph about um, if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling, that paragraph just made you think that um, probably the calling, the serving that you do is probably, I suspect, related to people very close to you, around you. I see people sometimes say that get into big causes and political things, and meanwhile, their minds are there, meanwhile, their father is, you know, needs some help, and their brother is strength with him, and somebody's, you know, the divorcement, you know, they, 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 they are, you know, um, not ignorant of some of their closest people in their family because they got bigger things in mind. And I'm thinking that. You know, that, that, that right. probably should start in your own home first. Take care of that. That's not maybe plenty. You know, yeah. I'm going to do this and maybe all you need to do, just put in front of you, 
first. That's right. Maybe somebody lost completely, but get your house in order kind of thing. Right. Sometimes people avoid that and they can be sort of with Right. Now, I think sometimes intuitively know that there's that little colloquialism, uh, charity begins at home. That we understand that that it has to be with those with whom you live or those that you see every day, that you live the gospel or you love and are patient, and it's not out there because again, you know, when it's out there, it's much easier. We can be friendlier to strangers than to those that we see every single day of our our life. And this, again, sort of pulls us away from that. We're moving on before somebody. <laughs> okay. We're at the bottom of the page, right? Therefore, I will trust him. Whatever, wherever I am, I can never be thrown away. If I'm in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I'm in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. My sickness or perplexity or sorrow may be necessary causes of some great end, which is quite beyond us. He does nothing in vain. He may prolong my life. He may shorten it. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide the future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. So the, the idea that God does nothing in vain, again, that there's not one aspect of our life or one aspect of our experience where the hand of God's providence is not a part of it, no matter how difficult or confusing or perplexing that might be. And again, this, I think, is where the virtue of hope is so important for us because when these things begin to happen in our life, our tendency is to want to run away or to take hold of the things that we can that make us feel that we can change those realities or alter them. That if we change this or that external, you know, we are going to, and of course this might be necessary in certain circumstances, so I don't want to overly generalize here, but I think often in our day-to-day -day life we will do that. We will want to take things into our own hands to precisely to avoid those things that are un unpleasant to us or are difficult to us, where it might be precisely where God has put us in order to act with love or fidelity or long-suffering in such a way that it brings healing to another. And again, we might not see that and we might never see it within this life. And I think that's where hope is important because it allows us to look through all of that again to the promises of God that that's what we are holding on to even when we cannot see it it's itself and there are so many things like that and I think in our day-to-day -day life that do seem utterly confusing and perplexing to us why why would this come about or why after all this time would something like this emerge in my life and what would God what could God possibly be asking of me now and I think that's when hope comes into play it allows us to keep moving moving forward O Adonai O ruler of Israel you who guide Joseph like a flock O Emmanuel O Sapientia I give myself to you 
I trust you wholly. You are wiser than I, more loving to me than I am to myself. Deign to fulfill your high purposes in me, whatever they may be, work in and through me. I am born to serve you, to be yours, to be your instrument. Let me be your blind instrument. I ask not to see, I ask not to know, I ask simply to be used. So this is the fundamental attitude that I think arises out of, of a real hope in God and a real hope in his goodness that we could even say something like this, that, uh, that you are more loving to me than I am to myself, that God loves us better than we can love our, ourselves, and that often escapes us. You know, we are often more self-protective maybe, or sometimes there can even be a kind of self-contempt really that drives us rather than the, this being sense of our being guided by, by love itself. Okay. So this brings us to the end of the, the first reflection. And the second is paired really beautifully with us because it, it, it leads us, it sort of provides to us why, what's the motivation here for us? Why would we place such a hope in God. And so it's the all-important question for us. Why, why would we live our lives in this way? So Newman writes, what mind of man can imagine the love which the Eternal Father bears towards the only begotten Son? It has been from everlasting and it is infinite. So great is it that it divines call I'm sorry, that divines call the Holy Spirit by the name of that love as if to express its infinitude and perfection. Yet reflect, O my soul, and bow down before the awesome mystery that as the, the Father loves the Son, so does the Son love you. If you are one of his elect, for he says expressly, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. What mystery in the whole circle of revealed truths is greater than this? And so as, as Christians, we believe in a revealed religion that God has made himself known to us in a dis distinctive and unique fashion in giving us his only begotten son. And part of this revelation is Christ himself telling us that the, the father loves us as he loves him and that he loves us as he loves the Father, and that we are destined to participate in, in this life, that we are going to be given something that draws us in the most intimate way into it. The love which the Son bears toward you, a creature, is like that which the Father bears toward the uncreated Son, a wonderful mystery. This then is the history of what else is so strange, that he should have taken my flesh and died for me. The former mystery anticipates the latter. The latter does not fulfill the former. If he did not love me so inexpressibly, expressibly, he would not have suffered for me. I understand now why he died for me, because he loved me as the father loves his son, not as a human father merely, but as the eternal father loves the eternal son. 
I see now the meaning of that otherwise inexplicable humiliation, inexplicable humiliation. He preferred to regain me rather than create new worlds. So God has loved us with an everlasting love. And this is what I was talking about earlier about being drawn into a mystery that is beyond us and being shown this love and having it revealed to us that is not simply by the power of our intellect, our mind, our imagination to construct this. It is by faith that it is seen and comprehended. And we've talked about this in many groups that our intellects and our reasons have uh, very great limitations. That it's by faith that we are grasped by something. Uh, St. John says, behold what love has been revealed to you. And behold means to be held by. We are allowed, we are meant to allow ourselves to be taken hold of, to be grasped by the love of God and drawn into this infinite mystery. It's not something that we take for ourselves. And it's even reflected in the way that we worship, that we receive the Holy Eucharist, we receive the love of God. We don't reach out and snatch it and take it for ourselves. We make a throne or we receive it on, on the tongue. We receive it into ourselves as gift. And it is faith that allows us to begin to comprehend that great beauty and that great truth that God has revealed to us. And similarly, I think in the warp and woof of day-to-day -day life, in all the things that we experience, we are meant to allow God to, to draw us into the mystery of his presence among us. But again, his desire to save all of us, his willingness to turn the world upside down to make it a possibility. And you know, one of the criticisms of the West is that we've fallen into a kind of rationalism and intellectualism, especially from the Enlightenment on in particular, that we've made ourselves or tend to make ourselves the center of the universe and the center of understanding. What we can see with our own eyes, what we can pull apart and dissect, that is what is true. We've lost a sense of the, the mystery of our own existence and the mystery of God's love and how it is that we come to see and comprehend that truth, that it is in and through faith. It's not as though our reason and intellect don't have a place. They certainly did for Newman, you know, in, in regards to his articulation of the faith. But, but he knew faith was a gift and that it was through this gift in particular that we come to comprehend the inexplicable, that God could love us so much that he could give us his only begotten son and that he could give him to us in such a way that he would be willing to take upon himself all the sin of the world and its consequences, including death itself, that life was born unto us in order to die for us upon the cross in order that we might come to know the fullness of life in the, in the Holy Trinity. And it is an inexplicable mystery that we are drawn into and called to participate in. And we have to approach it in this way, in, in a prayerful fashion where we are contemplating something by the grace of God and being realized that we have to be shown it. And I think so often this is why preaching can fall flat too.
because preaching is not meant to be a lecture. And it's not to be a practice, practice in exegesis of pulling apart the text and analyzing it. It's meant to arise out of a heart of faith that has contemplated the mystery that is being revealed to us and spoken to us in and through this word and that ultimately that we are going to receive in the Holy Eucharist. So it must be something that is inflamed with the, the fire of the Holy Spirit that then leads the one who proclaims it to, to preach, not simply out of intellect. Then you could have the most eloquent of preachers not have and not have their words penetrate to the hearts of their hearers because they're not preaching from that place of intimacy with God. But he uses the word inexplicable, which I mispronounced three times, but he uses it over and over again, I think for a particular reason, in, in order to make it clear to us that, that, again, that this is a mystery that we are drawn into. And sometimes in the Eastern liturgies, you know, you pick up that sense from them. Wisdom be attentive, the, the chanting, that they are being drawn into that most profound mystery that is beyond them, but that God in, in his mercy allows us to participate in, and that we participate in it not in a, in a functional kind of way, but in communion with all the saints and angels. We are participating in a heavenly liturgy. And again, this is not something that we, you know, approach in an intellectual way, but again, in and through uh, the eyes of faith. How constant is he in his affection? He has loved us from the time of Adam. He has said from the beginning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He did not forsake us in our sin. He did not, did not forsake me. He found me out and regained me. He made point of it. He resolved to restore me, in spite of myself, to that blessedness which I was so obstinately set against. And now what does he ask of me but that as he has loved me with an everlasting love, I should love him in such poor measures as I can show. O oh, mystery of mysteries, that the ineffable love of the Father toward the Son should be the love of the Son toward us. Why was it, O oh Lord? What good thing did you see in me a sinner? Why were you set on me? What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou should visit him? This poor flesh of mine, this weak sinful soul, which has no life except in your grace, you set your love upon. Complete your work, O Lord, and as you have loved me from the beginning, so make me to love you unto the end. So it's gaining vision of this love of God for us, this mystery of mysteries, as Newman calls it, that allows us then to cry out to God, you know, to bring it to its final conclusion, to complete the work that he has begun in us, and to remove every obstacle that we might place in the way. And it's hope, again, that allows us to, to hold on to this, where even faith fails, where we lose sight of what is before us completely, that it's hope that allows us to hold on to this promise. 
So that brings us to the conclusion of the, the uh, meditations. Any comments, questions? Yes. I think it is through these humble and simple ways. I think our, our tendency is to complicate things and we lose sight of the fact that you know, Christ set himself on this downward path that is hard for us again to wrap our mind around the extraordinary mystery of that. He who, in, in and through whom all things were created uh, takes our flesh upon himself and becomes infant. And we've talked about this before, again, in some groups, uh, the word infant, infons, means silent ones, ones without words. So the word through whom all things have been created became infant, without words, humbles himself, makes himself so vulnerable, so non-threatening to us, that whatever our state might be, whatever our experience of ourself might be, that there would be no hesitation and drawing close to him. And if we think about it, a small host, he makes himself the small host for us to be, to consume. He makes himself our, our food and drink in order that there would be nothing within us that would shy away or pull back from that. It's extraordinary. And again, I think, uh, you know, faith is what allows us to see the immensity of, of God in all of these uh, small things of our day-to-day life, these connections with each other, but also the ways that he comes to us. I think it's when we live up here too much, or we don't bring this into this, you know, the head into the heart, that we lose sight of what God has done for us and the beauty of it. Yes? I just love the the phrasing about being God's blind instrument. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, could you imagine going to the symphony and having the instruments fight the musicians mm-hmm. for different it would be a catastrophe mm-hmm. but even if just one did it but you know for us to just let go and surrender it's, right it's so very simple but very beautiful it is beautiful and there's a story told by this priest polish priest thaddeus dacher of uh, a master violinist performing solo in front of a huge audience and in the midst of it, a string, I think it's a string, breaks on his instrument. And yet he continues to play this piece masterfully, despite the fact that the instrument is broken. And Dacher makes the connection between God and ourselves, that, that there is this sweet, beautiful music, symphony, uh, that is played even on a broken instrument, that by God's grace, we are capable of these extraordinary things. And so it's amazing what this, these little meditations do. I think 
and similar to what we found in in uh, Romano Guardini, it they change the lens through which we view ourselves in the world and others. And where you get that feeling, I, there's no going back to how I, I, I saw things and or how I looked at my life or the difficult things or how I looked at others. That hope now has to be something that we seek to foster, that we pray for and become this fundamental attitude that we have as Christian men and women. Something that we cling to because we know that it's what pulls us through. Okay. So thank you very much. I think uh, there's much more that is beautiful to come. And uh, the next one is on the mental sufferings of Christ, which should be quite interesting. We'll be drawing close to Lent at that, that point as well. but. Uh, that'll be an interesting thing for us to take a look at, you know, what it was like for Christ to experience what he did internally. So why don't we uh, say the closing prayer together. Again, this is from St. John Henry Newman. May he support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then, in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. St. John Henry Newman. Pray for us. St. Philip Neri. Pray for us. Okay. Thank you all. God bless you.